That's good news for us today, church. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we greet you this morning with just happy hearts, excited about being in your presence today, excited about worshiping with the body today. Speak to us, Jesus, through your word. Open our minds, open our hearts. Spirit of God, move in our midst as we behold wonderful things from your law today. In the name of Christ, God's people together said, amen. Well, again, welcome to Scottsdale Bible Church. My name is Lucas Cooper. I'm one of the pastors here. I really, really, really love my job. <laughs> uh, it is just a joy to serve on staff here. Um, I've been here for almost eight years. I've been in vocational ministry for about 15. And this is the first time that I've had the opportunity to preach in, in the morning services here in the worship center. The venue actually joins us right now over on the other side of our campus. That's where I'm typically shepherding, leading worship over there. I just love those guys very, very much. They have actually heard this sermon before. Uh, Jason Fisher, our high school pastor, was supposed to preach over there this morning, but he's uh, sick. And so he texted me last night, I'm sick, good luck. Thanks. Um, <laughs> Super deal. So I have the really wonderful privilege of, 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 of standing in this pulpit today, and I, I really do. I count it an honor, and I'm humbled uh, to stand in the same pulpit as a guy named Dr. Daryl Delhuse and Jamie Rasmussen and Dr. Tim Kimmel sitting in the back, Dr. Wayne Grudem, and then me. <laughs> and every one of us, I'll just be honest with you, every one of us is a humble servant of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We exalt Jesus and Jesus alone above all things. None of us is even better than the other. We're all just servants of the king. So we're going to go to the word today. We're going to see what God has to say to us. In order to set us up, I want to tell you a quick story. Um, I, I have a couple of friends who I think have really cool jobs, real cool jobs. And my, uh, one of my very best friends in the world, I think he has a very, very cool job. Or, or he did for a time. He's an attorney now. That's not that cool. Um, <clears throat> if you're an attorney, relax. It'll be okay. Um, he was in the Navy for 10 years, and I don't have the courage or fortitude to go serve, and God bless those guys who served and went on behalf of our country. That is an amazing feat that they did. I think that's a pretty cool job. So he was in the Navy for 10 years, and he flew a, a plane called the E-6 Mercury. So we were snowboarding a couple years ago with, with that guy and another one of my very best friends. We're in a small group together here at Scottsdale Bible Church along with our wives. So the six of us, three of us, three of us guys and three gals. And we're walking around the town of Telluride and one of my best friends who served in the Navy said, hey dude, let's start a snowball fight with our wives. I said, that's stupid. And he said, come on man, be a shipmate. Be a shipmate. And I thought, I'm in the Navy. <laughs> I have a very cool job now, you know. So while my friend, who's about six foot six, goes over and picks up a little bit of snow, I walk over to the other side of the street and fashion an assault missile <laughs> made of snow, made for my wife, right? So our wives are about 30 yards behind us, and my, my buddy picks up the snow, and he goes, all right, shipmate, you ready? And of course, I'm ready. I'm a shipmate. One, two, three, go. And he turns around and does this, okay? I turn around with, with this rock-hard piece of ice now that I've made. And I've made sure it's aerodynamic. And all of a sudden, I'm coming out of the bullpen for the Red Sox. This is exactly what happens, right? I take two hard steps directly at my wife and crow hop. Do you know what a crow hop is? I do this. Whoa! 
And the minute it leaves my hand, I think, this is bad. <laughs> Shipmate or not, this was a bad idea. Nothing but bad can come out of this. Just this is going to be disastrous. And of course it was. My sweet wife is about 30 yards. Remember behind me, she's talking to her friends and she looks up with a smile because she's having a great time just for a moment. She doesn't put her hand up. It doesn't glance her on the shoulder. It hits her directly in the face and explodes everywhere. Before the snow particles hit the ground, my wife has exploded into tears. And of course she has. The man she loves has just tried to kill her with a snowball. <laughs> because I wanted to be a shipmate, right? That's exactly the kind of situation that we find the nation of Israel in in the passage that we're looking at today, believe it or not. They have thrown a proverbial snowball and nothing but disaster can come from the decisions that they've made. Here's the snowball. They have a God. His name is Yahweh. They're in a covenant with him. Here's what it looks like. Yahweh says, I'll protect you, keep you. I'll be your king, your God, your Lord. I'll come alongside you. I'll go before you and behind. And in exchange, you obey all the stipulations of the covenant. And in Exodus 19, 8, all the nation of Israel together says, we will obey everything that the Lord has commanded us. And they have a king. His name is Yahweh. But after a little while, they start looking at the other nations around them. And they say, well, that nation's got a human king. And that nation's got a human king. And that nation's got a human king. Why don't we have a human king? So they go to their prophet Samuel and they say, we want a human king. Samuel says, no, you don't. And they say, yes, we do. And he says, no, you don't. And they say, yes, we do. Samuel goes to God and he says, God, they want a human king. God says, I know, I'm God, I heard. He says, Samuel, give them what they want. They're not rejecting you, they are rejecting me. So give them what they want. Samuel goes back to the nation of Israel and he says, okay, God says you get a human king. Who do you want? They say, we want that guy. The guy they point at is a man named Saul. The one and only reason they choose Saul as their king is that he is heads and shoulders above everybody else. He's taller. He looks like a king. They don't choose him because he's godly. They don't choose him for his leadership ability. They don't choose him for any other reason than he's taller than everybody else. When they choose Saul, he actually hides from them. That's how badly this man does not want this job. He hides from them. They reject Yahweh as king and choose a king that doesn't even want the job. Do you see the snowball? Nothing but disaster can come from this. I wish that Daryl Delhuse was a part of the nation of Israel at that time because he might have preached that sermon about keeping your nose out of other people's bags. You focus on your own bag. You keep your nose in your bag because this is the predicament that the nation of Israel got themselves in by comparing themselves to other nations around them. Have you ever done that? Compared yourself to other people around you? They've got this and I want it. They've got that and I want it. God, I'm not happy with what you've given me. Put your nose in somebody else's bag. That comparison game never ends well. Never a winner in the comparison game. So here's the consequences that the nation of Israel are going to face, among other things. They're camped in a valley called the Valley of Elah. They're on one side and the Philistines are on the other. The Valley of Elah is a very strategic valley in Israel because it divides um, the, the Philistine camps with the Judean hills. So it's very strategic for the Israelites or the Philistines to control this valley. 
The Philistines decide that the best way for them to win the battle against Israel is to engage in what's called champion warfare. This is champion warfare. They choose someone from their ranks, send them out into the valley and say, you send your best, we'll send our best. And whoever wins, they'll fight to the death. And whoever wins, everybody wins. Whoever loses, everybody loses. They send a champion out as a representative. Do you see? If you have your Bibles, 1 Samuel chapter 17, it's probably about 10% of the way into your Bible. In my Bible here, it's on page 238, but that really doesn't help you at all, I'm sure. 1 Samuel chapter 17, picture this now. The nation of Israel is encamped on one side of the valley of Elah, and the Philistines are encamped on the other, and they send out a champion. 1 Samuel 17, we're going to pick it up in verse 4. And there came... Out from the camp of the Philistines, a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. The weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come up to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Pause there. Who are they really servants of? Yahweh. Yahweh. But they've made a mistake and Goliath mocks them for it. Keep reading. Choose a man for yourselves and let him come out to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. I want you to notice two things from that text that we just read. The first is this. Uh, it's some sort of a weird metric system, right? The cubits and the shekels and all that stuff. I don't know what all that stuff is, so I looked it up. That's what good pastors do. He's six cubits and a span tall. That means he is nine foot nine inches tall. Add up all those shekels together, he's wearing 150 pounds of armor. The head of his spear weighs 15 pounds. It says his spear was like a weaver's beam. A weaver's beam was about the size of a fat end of a baseball bat. And to add insult to injury, they send a little pipsqueak like me out uh, as his armor bearer. Is this really necessary to make this man more intimidating, right? He's nine foot nine. He's wearing 150 pounds of armor. He doesn't need me marching out there, you know, make him more intimidating. Just so you know, for some of you who might be skeptical, really nine foot nine, nine foot nine, is that really true? 13th century before Christ, Egyptian text, not even related to the scripture, Egyptian text talks about warriors between seven and nine foot tall. History bears this out. This man was nine foot nine inches tall. In a biblical city or a city called Zarethan, which is near where the Israelites crossed the Jordan River. You know where that was? Israelites crossed the Jordan River. They found two skeletons uh, that were about seven and a half feet tall. And you think to yourself, well, we got guys in the NBA that are seven and a half feet tall. Do we have people in the WNBA that are seven and a half feet tall? Because those two skeletons were female. Female, seven and a half feet tall. This man was not a figment of Israelite imagination. He was every Hebrew's nightmare come true. 
He was unconquerable. He was invincible. He was impossible. There was nothing that they could do. No, not, no weapon they could bring. No power they could go out and, and, and conquer this man. And for 40 days and for 40 nights, he walks out in the middle of this valley and he mocks God and he mocks Israel. And he says, send somebody out to fight me. Verse 11 says that Israel was greatly afraid and dismayed. Again, no duh, right? I mean, please. The, the word dismayed there in the original language is very interesting because it almost means cuckoo. It almost means batty, nuts, berserk, bananas. They are beside themselves in fear of the enemy that's come out to stand against them. They are having a difficult time thinking, a difficult time speaking, acting, relating, because they are so crippled by their fear. Have you ever been there? Something happens in life, consequences of sin, your sin, somebody else's sin, just, or just the way the ball kind of bounces in life, just circumstances, and just crippled with fear. This is where the nation of Israel is. There are three young men in the nation of Israel army. Their names are Eliab, Abinadab, and Shema. Their dad's name is Jesse, and Jesse starts to get worried, as dads tend to do. So he asks their youngest brother, who's a shepherd, to take groceries to his brothers on the front lines of the nation of Israel. He gets demoted from shepherd boy to grocery boy. <laughs> and he says, sure, dad, I'm happy to do it. That young man's name is David. David. History tells us that he was about 12 years old at this time. He's not even old enough to fight in the army. That's why he's not a soldier. 12 years old. So David takes the groceries that his dad gives to him, and he makes his way to the front of the Israelite army, front lines, and we're going to pick it up together there in verse 23. Here's what happens in 1 Samuel 17, verse 23. David delivering groceries to his brother. And as he talked with them, that means his brothers, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw this man, fled from him and were much afraid. For 40 days and for 40 nights, these men of the Israelite army have seen this Goliath come out and mock God and mock the armies of God, and no one's done anything. David's confused by this. He says, we have Yahweh on our side. What's going on? We have his promises to trust in. We don't need weapons. We don't need anything. We just need God to come through. We just got to trust him and do it. So he says to his brother, which I think is interesting, um, the question that David asked his brothers and these other soldiers around is not, um, are we going to kill this man? The question is this, who gets to do it and what does he get? This is how confident David is that the promises of God are true, that God is going to come through. Who gets to do it and what does he get? We're not going to read the text. I'm just going to run you through. This is, this is a little bit of a loose translation. This is the conversation that ensues between Eliab and David. Eliab says, look, shepherd boy, you don't know what you're talking about. Why don't you shut your pie hole? Okay, so <laughs> David, David stands with these other soldiers and Eliab walks away. And David looks at these other soldiers and goes, man, I was just saying, I don't, I mean, I'm just, but seriously, who's going to kill him and what does he get? <laughs> he asks the question again, but nobody's done anything. Just as a side note, 
Who should be the man that walks out and fights Goliath? Saul. He's king in Israel. He's their leader. He's heads and shoulders taller than everybody else. But he is dismayed and greatly afraid as well, crippled by his own fear because he's not trusting in the promises of God. So David decides he's going to take action. He goes to Saul and he says, Saul, I'm going to go kill this Philistine. And Saul goes, <laughs> mm-mm, mm-mm. this is not a good idea. And David said, look, when I was a shepherd in the field, a lion attacked me and he took one of my sheep. But I grabbed the sheep out of his mouth and I killed the lion. God delivered me from the hand of the lion. Then another wild animal attacked me and I took that wild animal down too, killed him, grabbed my sheep. Surely the God who delivered me from the hand of the lion and the hand of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this uncircumcised Philistine. Saul says, why don't you try my armor on? David tries his armor on. He looks like an idiot because he's a 12-year-old boy wearing the armor of a man whose head's and shoulders taller than everybody else. Can't move, can't walk, can't do anything. And he says, I haven't even tested these weapons. I'm going to throw them off and choose for myself stones from a brook and a sling. Stones and a sling. That's what I'm going to use. And with confidence in the promises of the living God, David, at 12 years old now, walks out into the middle of this valley to meet a nine foot, nine inch tall giant. Pick it up with me in verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog? that you come at me with sticks? Remember, he doesn't have a sword in his hand. He's not wearing any armor. Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day is so matter-of-fact. I love this. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down, cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with a sword and a spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David we could probably just say amen and go home. God is faithful. He is good. When we trust in his promises, he uses the weak to defeat the strong. Those who we think are small in this world, and he defeats those who we think are great in this world to display his great glory and his great splendor and his goodness to his children. But instead of saying amen and going home, we're going to pick a couple things from this passage to apply. There are probably a thousand of them. I picked three. Good preachers preach in threes. That's what I heard, all right? So I picked three. I want to just let you know real quick that that God, when we we start applying this passage, I'll just be honest with you. It, um, 
it can be a little bit difficult because no one wants to be the nation of Israel, right? No one goes, I'd really like to be greatly afraid and dismayed. That's my dream, you know? And no one says, I'd like to be like the Philistine. I mean, I'm only five foot nine inches tall. If I could get a little, a couple more inches, that'd be great. I'd like to be tall like him, but I would not like to have my head cut off. So, you know, it's kind of six one way, half dozen the other. I, I don't want to trade for that. What does everybody want to be? David, David. Everyone wants to see God do great things, do miracles. I don't care who you are, what background you come from, whether you consider yourself religious or not, whether you've been here for 50 years, whether you just stepped in this place for the very first time, there is not one of us here that does not want to see God do great things. We go, wow, what a miracle. Only God could have done that. But God doesn't promise us ease and comfort. He certainly doesn't promise us consequence-free living. The nation of Israel still had to deal with their consequences. What God promises us in Romans 8.28 is that all things work together for the good of those who love him. Those are called according to his purpose. He promises that he will do things for his glory and for our good. And it doesn't matter how big the enemy is, how unconquerable it seems, how impossible it seems, how invincible it seems. God always wins. We have a saying in our house, it's God is never late He's very rarely early. He comes through every time, on time, and he did for the nation of Israel. So the principles that we're going to pull from this text, please don't hear me say, if I apply these three things, God will make my life easy, comfortable, consequence-free. Please hear me say, These are lessons we can learn from the life of David so that we might put ourselves into a position where God would be displayed in all of his glory in our life and we become more like Christ. His glory, our good. You with me? Point number one, to put yourself in a position to conquer the unconquerable in your life, to overcome the impossible so that God might do that on your behalf. Focus on God's glory focus on God's glory. And and let's look at this real quickly from the life of David, and then we're going to unpack it together. Look at verse 46 and 47. David says to Goliath, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth. Pay attention now that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know, for the Lord saves with a, not with a sword and a spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Do you see David's heart's desire here? Do you see his primary goal in this text? It's not to defend his dad. It's not to defend his brothers. It's certainly not to defend himself. It's not even to defend Saul and the nation of Israel. Whose glory is he about? God's. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Men and women of God, when we face the impossible in our life, when we face things that feel unconquerable, that feel invincible, what we have the tendency to do is to buckle down and to focus, what do I need to do? What do I need to fix? How do I control this? We build our kingdom. We set up walls around ourselves and and we try to figure it out on our own. And what does David do? He goes, oh, this is not about me. 
for the battle is the Lord's. And he might use me to conquer the unconquerable so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. I think we kind of get this twisted a little bit in the American church and really in the church all over the world today, unfortunately. Um, I want to walk you through three statements really quickly that maybe just help us understand how we kind of, we, we kind of noodle with the glory of God and we even noodle with the truth of Scripture a little bit. I'm going to put one statement up here on, on the screen and, and stick with me here. The, the statement is this, God blesses us. God blesses us. This is a very, very biblical principle. James says that he is the father of heavenly lights. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. Jesus says, hey, look, you have a kid that comes to you and asks for bread. Do you give him a rock? He comes to you and asks for a fish. Do you give him a snake? You're evil and you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more does our heavenly father know? It is a very biblical principle. God blesses us. Please do not hear me say today that this is unbiblical. If you want to email somebody about that, email Pastor Jamie at scottsdalebible.com, okay? Um, but please don't hear me say that this is unbiblical. What I'm suggesting to you today is this it's just incomplete. That's all I'm suggesting. Let's, let's make it a little bit more complete. Uh, this is the statement that's a little bit more biblically comprehensive. God blesses us so that he gets glory. Now, now we see a little bit fuller picture of what God's up to in the scripture. But for me, this still isn't right because I'm still first and foremost in this text. I'm still first and foremost in, in this statement. God blesses me so that he gets glory. I'm still first and foremost. Let's just flip it around and make it biblical. God deserves glory. Therefore, he blesses us. God's glory is, is primary. His splendor is primary. His name, his fame, his honor, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel is first and foremost on his mind. And he blesses us so that we might declare his great glory. I want you to watch this work its way out in, 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 in an individual's life that I, I find really fascinating. Did y'all watch the, the Summer Olympic deal? The, you, you know, you're familiar with the Olympics? You know the deal? All right. So you've heard of them, right? <laughs> Once or twice? Okay, so summer 2012. I love the Olympics for a number of reasons. One is because in like half those events, it's like disaster is imminent, you know? Hey, we're gonna put you on this little bitty thing and we're gonna shoot you down about 100 miles an hour on an ice track. How's that sound? Okay, and then they go down the track, you know? I think that's great. Uh, the other reason I really got into the Summer Olympics this year especially is because I really got into the women's gymnastics thing. I like women's gymnastics and women's sports a little bit more than men's sports because they act like a team a little bit more. Some guys tend to hot dog a little bit and all that stuff. These women, they act like a team. I like that, so I got into it. How many of you rooted for Gabby Douglas like crazy? You know Gabby Douglas? Yeah. Gabby Douglas won the all-around, 2012 all-around Olympic gold medal. She wasn't even favored. She wasn't even supposed to do much in this thing. And she won the all-around gold medal. That night she gave an interview and she was asked a question and here was her simple response. God has given me this awesome talent to represent him. Glory goes up to him, the blessings fall down on us. Do you see how the order's right? God's glory is primary, blessings are secondary. Later on that night she actually tweeted uh, Psalm 103. Uh, who wrote Psalm 103? David, David. 
She tweeted Psalm 103. Psalm 103 reads this. Let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget the good things he has done for me. Do you see how her focus is primarily on God's glory? And she realizes that the scripture teaches that all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget the good things he's done for me. A few days later, uh, Gabby Douglas would compete in the, the bars, the uneven bars event. Um, and this was how she was, this, is, this was her deal. This was her event. She was supposed to win gold in the uneven bars. And she didn't. She failed. She got like eighth or something. She was favored. She, she, that was her thing. That was how she was supposed to contribute and win for her country. And she didn't. And people kind of picked on her a little bit. Media kind of picked on her a little bit. Was she unprepared? Was she unfocused? Did she get lost in it a little bit? Then they started talking about her dad. Did you guys hear this? Did you guys see it? They literally did. The media started talking about her dad. Her dad's kind of a deadbeat and their relationship is strained and she doesn't really talk to him very much. And is he really a great guy? And what's she really about if her relationship with her dad is strained? Then they started picking on her hair. Did y'all see it? This is not, this is, I'm not kidding here. If you go home and Google, start typing in Gabby Douglas, you'll get to about Gabby Doug and one of the op options that Google will give you is Gabby Douglas hair. That's how much the media talked about it. It's like it's, it's, it will automatically do that for you on Google. They start picking apart her character. They start picking apart her motivations. They start picking apart her family. And, and, they, and when they had nothing less to pick on, uh, they started picking on her hair. So now I want to know, is God's glory primary for you? Is God's glory primary for you? Are blessings really secondary? The day after all that stuff came out and all the media nitpicking and everything, let's, let's take a look at how Gabby responded. Tweet number three, beloved, never avenge yourselves. Believe it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Do you see how she walks in freedom and in joy? I, I, I don't even need to respond to this. This is God's show. This is God's deal. God's glory, God's name, God's fame. I don't have to avenge myself. I don't have to avenge my family. I don't have to go after somebody. I don't have to defend anything because it says in the word of God in Romans, beloved, never avenge yourselves. Believe it to the wrath of God for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. When we face unconquerable enemies, when we face the impossible, when we face things in our life, whatever it is, that cause dismay and fear. We have a tendency again to buckle down and to do it ourselves and God invites us into his grace to new freedom and new life and saying, I don't have to do that because this is about you and you alone. Your glory is primary. Point number two, if you're taking notes is this, be willing to carry the groceries. Be willing to carry the groceries. Some of you may be confused. Write it down anyway. We'll get there, I promise. Be willing to carry the groceries. We all would love to be David when he conquers Goliath. We all would love to be the guy that causes the Philistine army to just go nuts, right? We all would love to be the guy that causes the Israelite army to cheer and go crazy. Are we willing to be the shepherd in the field? And, and look what David's dad asked him to do. It's right there in verse 17 and 18. Reads this way. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring 
and bring some take token from them. David is a shepherd in the field and he gets demoted to grocery boy. And what's his response? Absolutely. You got it. Happy to serve. Men and women of God, sometimes God's greatest doors of opportunity rest on the smallest hinges of obedience. Sometimes God's greatest doors of opportunity rest on the smallest hinges of obedience. God invites us to do the little things. So when the unconquerable and the impossible and the invincible comes along, we've learned his faithfulness. We've learned to obey over time. Our actions, obedient or disobedient to the Lord, have consequences and they build on one another. I had a friend in high school, her dad was our uh, pastor, and while we were in high school, we were freshmen in high school, it came out that her dad had been having an affair for about 25 years, uh, multiple affairs. Uh, he had done a lot of stuff with their uh, financial situation and caused them to go bankrupt, and he hadn't told his family about it, so that all kind of came out. And um, we didn't know really how to deal with this kind of stuff. We just prayed and cried and talked. Uh, so I went to my friend and I said, how do, you, how do you even process this with your dad? What'd you even say? What'd you even ask? She said, Luke, it's interesting. The first question that I asked him was, where did it start? Where did it start 25 years ago? Where did it start? Did you see a good looking gal? Were you out by yourself? What, what, what happened? How, how that, how that start? And, uh, her dad says it wasn't any of that. It wasn't a tragedy. It wasn't anything. He said, I'd had a long week in ministry. I was really tired and really weary, and I'd been around people all the time, and I just needed time for myself. He said, so I called your mom, and I said, I'm going to be late for dinner. It was about 6.30. I'm going to be late for dinner. Um, she said, that's okay. I'll put the kids down. What's up? He said, I, I, just, I just have to work late. just have to work late. I'm here at the office. I've got to work for another half hour, and I'll be home late. She said, okay, no problem, no big deal. He didn't have to work late. He just wanted alone time. He just wanted downtime. So he walked across the street to a coffee house, sat and had a cup of coffee, cup of coffee by himself. Didn't say a word to anybody, didn't meet anybody, nothing. Just had a cup of coffee. He said, that's where it started. I realized that I could lie and go across the street and get 30 minutes. And the next time it was 45 minutes. And the next time it was an hour. And the next time it was a day. And the next time it wasn't a coffee shop, it was somewhere else and something else and someone else. And it built and built and built and built and built because I started with a very, very small act of disobedience. Our actions have consequences no matter what they are, disobedient or obedient. God invites us to obey him in the small things, to serve him in the small things, to figure out his faithfulness and to experience his goodness in the little things things so that when the unconquerable comes along we can say with David God delivered me from the hand of a lion he delivered me from the hand of a bear he delivered my sheep surely he will deliver me I've learned to be faithful in the little things shepherding sheep being grocery boy happy to do whatever obedient in the little things leads to God conquering the unconquerable in our life we're quickly running out of time here, so point number three is this, and we'll see it in the life of David. Point number three is take faith-based action. Take faith-based action. Check out verse 48. Verse 48. 
when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David, what? Ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. He didn't saunter, he didn't waltz, he didn't mosey, he didn't jog, he ran. And the author of scripture feels it necessary to add an adverb. He ran quickly. There are 50 verbs in 1 Samuel 17 used for David. 50. David took, David chose, David cut off, David killed, David served, David this, David that, all throughout 1 Samuel 17. And every action that David took was based on the unfailing promises of a very good and gracious God. Take faith-based action. In 15 years of vocational ministry, I've seen people come into my office all the time and they're wondering, gosh, I'm facing this thing in my life. I don't know what's going on. And it's a, it's a, it's a, I just feel so overwhelmed by it. It's the unconquerable enemy, you know? And I say, well, what are you doing about it? So, I mean, like, you know, let's take an example. My, my, you know, my marriage is falling apart. Let's say somebody comes in and says, my marriage is falling apart. Um, and, and I don't know how to fix it. I don't know how to conquer it. I, I just feel so overwhelmed. So, okay, well, tell me about the last fight you had. Well, uh, I came home on Saturday night and we had a little fight because I had played 36 holes of golf with my buddies and my wife was less than thrilled with it. Oh, <laughs> well, that makes a little more sense. <laughs> you have not taken faith-based action. There's an unconquerable enemy in your life and that faith-based action is, is saying, you know what? I'm gonna pursue my wife. I'm gonna go after my wife. I'm gonna pray with and for my wife. I'm not gonna go play 36 holes of golf on a Saturday. I don't have any problem with golf. I got clubs for Christmas. <laughs> I don't have any problem with it. It's great. What I have a problem with is, is us saying, God, what are you doing? What are you after? What are you up to? And I feel so overwhelmed and so afraid. And God says, trust me and take action. Trust me and take action. When my wife and I were first married, um, we started getting these letters. It was April 22nd. We got married April 22nd, 2006. And that's about the time of the year where you start getting support letters in the mail. Did all, everybody know what a support letter is? All the youth at our church, you know, they go out on mission trips during the summer and they go serve in Africa and Venezuela and all, all over the place. And they write these letters that in a sense, here's what it says. I'm going on a mission trip. Please send me money. Okay, great. Perfect. Um, I wrote the same letters this year. Went to Africa in October. Wrote the same letter. So I'm okay with it. So my wife and I start reading through five, six, seven, eight support letters and we're going, we don't have the money to support these guys. We don't have the money. And God's knocking on our heart going, take action. Trust me for provision and serve. Take faith-based action. So we prayed and we came up with a number. God, this is what we feel like you want us to give. It feels like a lot to us. It feels like a lot to us. For some of you, it may feel like a whole lot. For some of you, it may feel like a whole little. But for us, it felt like a lot. But we had to trust God and take action. So we sent these letters back with a check enclosed in each one. The next day, we get a check from our insurance company. Hadn't happened before then and has not happened since. A check from our insurance company. I'll give you one guess as to what the amount of that check was. You're wrong. That's the great part is you're wrong. <laughs> You think you know, but you don't. It was the total plus $1.32. <laughs> Someone after the first service came up to me, she was like, stamps. Did you put stamps on? It's stamps.
Men and women of God, when, when we take faith-based action, when we trust in the promise and the provision of God, we trust in the goodness of God, he, please hear me say, he does not promise ease. He does not promise comfort. He does not promise consequence-free living. He does not promise a check in your mailbox tomorrow. It's not what he promises. He promises his glory, and he promises our good, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Focus on his glory be willing to carry the groceries and take faith-based action. And you might be thinking to yourself, Luke, you said we were wrapping up the Christmas season. <laughs> what in the world does this have to do with Christmas? Well, David didn't stay 12 years old. David grew up to be king in Israel. He united 12 tribes that were nomadic and scattered before, and he was the greatest king that Israel ever known. Later in his life, they would sing these songs that said, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. The greatest king that Israel ever knew. He wrote most of the Psalms. So when Isaiah, the prophet, comes along and he writes this, for unto us a child is born. For unto us a son is given. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. And on the throne of David he will reign forever and ever. Jesus, the son of the living God that we celebrate in this time, conquered the most unconquerable enemy that we ever faced, sin and hell and death. And he did so by focusing on the glory of God, by being willing to carry the groceries, and by taking faith-based action. We glean from the text, we glean from what God has to say to us. God, I trust you. I will follow in the example of David in this case, and I will follow, most importantly, in the example of Jesus, that I might give you room to conquer the unconquerable in my life. Pray with me. God, we love you, we praise you, we trust you for great and mighty things. God, for some of us, we have enemies in our life that's a result of our sin. God, consequences that, that we just couldn't fathom and we feel so overwhelmed. God, for some of us, we, we, we have consequences in our life and, and enemies in our life that feel impossible because of others' sin. For some of us, it's just the way life happened. It's just the way a cookie crumbled. It's not, it's not anybody's wrongdoing. It just happened. And God, we, we feel dismayed. We feel greatly afraid. Jesus, speak to our hearts today and remind us of your goodness, your faithfulness, your power, your majesty. God, that you are here with us and that your promises are just as true now as they were 2,000 years ago and as they were 5,000 years ago. We love you. We trust you today. And we look forward to this next year as you conquer the unconquerable in our life. In the name of Christ, the people of God with enthusiasm together said, Amen. Happy New Year. See you all next week.